You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. My name is Benedict Ashley. I'm a member of the Dominican Order, Order of Preachers, and I teach moral theology at Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis. This series of lectures has been about the grounding of moral theology, our moral thinking, in the scriptures. I think this is a very important topic for our times because people often think that the teaching of the church on morals is just something that they think up in Rome and they impose on Catholics in order to show the authority of the Vatican. This is not the case. Catholic moral teaching is scriptural teaching and we need to bring that out. It's not mere philosophy. It's not just human thinking. It's the Word of God directing us toward Him, toward our goal of happiness with God forever. In the previous lectures, I first tried to show how the scriptures show us the gradual development of God's teaching of His people the way of truth and life. That this took a long time in the Old Testament. That it is brought to its culmination and perfection in Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God and the model for our whole life. And that Jesus empowered His church to live that life, to be transformed through the Holy Spirit into His likeness. Now, the heart of the Christian life is faith, hope, and charity. In the Old Testament, the heart of the moral teaching was the Ten Commandments. But in the New Testament, the heart of moral teaching is faith, hope, and love, which St. Paul says, abide forever. In the last uh, lecture, I tried to explain the character of faith that faith is the foundation of our whole Christian life, and that we are saved by faith alone if we mean a living faith, a faith that is joined to hope and love, but a faith that is merely a matter of believing without loving and acting as God wishes us to act is not a living faith and is not a saving faith. In this lecture, I want to talk about hope. There's an old Greek legend that there was a woman named Pandora. The name means all gifts. The gods gave her a little box which contained, they said, all the treasures of life, but she must not open it. Well. Pandora, like a lot of us, was very curious. She couldn't have that box sitting around without taking a look. So she looked inside, and inside were all the good things of life, but they had wings, and they flew away. She was in despair. And then she noticed that there was one little gift left in the box, and that little gift was hope. Now, that's pagan wisdom, but it is wisdom. It's true. When everything else is gone, hope remains. Hope is utterly important to anybody's life. Without hope, what is left? Christian hope is also absolutely essential to the Christian life. We need, however, to distinguish between the hope of the Old Testament and the hope of the New Testament. I've already said something about this in a previous lecture by pointing out 
that in the Old Testament, what is believed and hoped for is in the future. While in the New Testament, what is believed and hoped for is in the future, but is also in the present. Already, we possess God. We possess God in Jesus Christ. And so, in a very real sense, we not only hope for heaven, but if we are united to God in love and grace, we already possess heaven. Our hope is, as it were, by anticipation fulfilled. Some people, I think, have a wrong idea of hope. They think that hope is a sort of conditional thing. They say, well, I hope to get to heaven, and I know I will get to heaven if I do the right things. But then, of course, the thought comes, well, what if you don't do the right things? <laughs> then where is hope? That is why some of the Protestant churches have interpreted the faith of the New Testament as really a kind of hope and have said that once you're saved, you're always saved. Because they say otherwise, if your faith was not so certain that you know that you will get to heaven, it would not be really a living kind of faith. Well, that's, I think, a confusion. Hope is different than faith. Faith is attaining to God, holding on to God, grasping God as truth. Hope, on the contrary, is taking hold of God as loving and merciful power. There would be little advantage of believing in God if God couldn't do anything for us. It's because God is all-powerful so powerful that he can even overcome our sins, that he can even transform us so that we little by little give up all sin and move toward him, that we can hope in him. The object of hope, therefore, is God in his power and his mercy, the mercy with which he uses his power. But above all, it's in God as so powerful that he can overcome every obstacle. There is nothing that can stand in God's way. We believe that God is all-powerful, and therefore we are confident that he can overcome everything, even our sinfulness. We therefore can look forward to the future with confidence not because faith has told us that we are predestined for heaven. There's no revelation in the Bible that says Benedict Ashley is going to heaven. There have been saints to whom God has revealed that they will get to heaven, but there are very few indeed. Most of us have to live in hope. Faith does not tell us that we are predestined for heaven. It tells us that God is all-powerful, all-merciful, all-loving, and that he can bring us to heaven, and that he will bring us to heaven if we let him. If we give ourselves to him and allow him to move us forward and give us his grace, we will make it. And so hope is sure. Just as faith is unfailing, God cannot lie. God is truth itself. So hope is sure. God is all-powerful. Nothing can prevent him from overcoming every obstacle to our union with him. Christian faith is something truly positive. It has no condition to it. I don't say... God will save me if I do my part. We don't even say that. We say, God will save me if I trust in him and accept his help. 
if I cooperate with his help. And that very cooperation I know is his work in me. It's not just me. It's God working in me with him. Hope, therefore, is something very certain. The men and women of the Old Testament hoped in the coming of the Messiah. We Christians possess the Messiah. He has come to us. He teaches us every day through the scriptures and the preaching of the church. We receive him in the Eucharist. He forgives our sins in the sacrament of reconciliation. He gives us new life through baptism. Why should we not hope in him? He has already demonstrated to us that he can overcome our sinfulness when he gave us rebirth in baptism. He has already demonstrated to us that we can be united to him because we receive him in communion. He has already demonstrated to us that he will forgive us and help us have a new start every time we go to confession. And so our hope is based not merely on promise, but also on fulfillment. Now that leads to a very important point. It means that the Christian living in this world is living in a certain tension. And I think because we don't always feel this tension today, it's not brought out to us by our culture. Sometimes we don't hear it enough in church that we don't quite really appreciate what hope is all about. We live in a culture that goes for comfort. And so we try to be comfortable all the time. We don't like to live under stress, under tension. But there is an inevitable tension that nobody can overcome. We're all going to die. We all know that. There is no way out of that. And as we get older, we think of it oftener. And of course, in the world today, young people begin to think of it perhaps sooner than they used to because there are so many threats and the newspapers, the television, show us so many disasters. We know that we live on the knife's edge, as someone has said. There is a tension between life and death. But the tension for the Christian is between two things, both of which are in his prayers. In the Our Father, we pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, notice that. There's a tension in that. On the one hand, we pray that God's will, his justice and peace will come on earth. This life is important, and it's important that we live this life. But on the other hand, the fulfillment of our life lies beyond death. It lies in immortal life and resurrection. And so we live in this tension. We can't get out of it. We have to accept it. It comes to us every day if we are thoughtful people. We live betwixt and between heaven and earth. We must live this life because the way we live this life determines the way we will live eternal life. But on the other hand, this life is passing. The scriptures say we have no abiding city here. This is not our home. In the prayer that Catholics often say, the Salve Regina, Hail Holy Queen, we say that we are in exile. Think of us poor children of Eve in exile. We are exiled from our heavenly home. We are like Adam and Eve. We are cast out of the paradise that God created for us. We are a pilgrim people, like 
the Jews were who traveled through the desert to the Holy Land. We're always on the move. That tension between heaven and earth, between this life and the next life, is fundamental to Christian morals. And it's one of the things that is specific about Christian morals. The fact of two lives that have to be led and their connection. If I don't live this life well, I won't enter into the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, the real point of this life is that eventually I get to the kingdom of God. Now that's what makes hope so important. Hope is the thing that bridges the gap. We have to hope for things in this life. There is a mistaken idea that people have sometimes had that Christianity teaches contempt for the world. And it's true that there are some writings of the Middle Ages, one writing by a famous Pope, Pope Innocent III, called De Contemptu Mundi, on the contempt for the world. But Innocent III, having written this work on contempt for the world, then intended to write another work in which he would explain the good things about this world and the good things about heaven. He never got to it. He was a pope who was too occupied with all the troubles of life to be able to talk eventually about the good things of life. But it's not true that Christianity teaches us contempt for this world. We pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We want this to be a good world. We want justice and peace here. We have obligation to overcome the evils of the world. God never told us just accept the troubles of life, accept the evils of the world, accept sickness and death. No, God is a God of life. That's one of the important things of reading the Old Testament because the Old Testament speaks very plainly about the importance of this life. This life is important. And I might add that this life is kept before us by the sacrament of matrimony. That one of the sacraments of the church is the sacrament of matrimony, of marriage, reminds us that this is a world of birth and death. It's a world where families are made New children come into existence, and the future is maintained. But it's also a place that our loved ones die. Family life is a life of birth and death, a life of time, of things that pass away. But it's a good life. We have to remember that. We have to make this a world where family life can be a good life, where social life can be a good life. That is the good point of liberation theology. You know, several years ago, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, headed by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, issued two documents. The first one got a lot of attention from the papers. The second was somewhat ignored. The first one pointed out that what we hear as liberation theology has its dangers. The second pointed out the good things in liberation theology and promoted what is good in liberation theology. Because what is good in liberation theology is the social doctrine of the church, which teaches us our duty to try to make this a good world, a world of peace and of justice and harmony and the advance of science and learning. Vatican II, in its document, The Church in the Modern World, stressed that point, that the church is not just a church of heaven, it's a church of earth as well. But on the other hand, we must never forget that this world is passing away. And that's the reason in the church there's not only the sacrament of marriage, but there's also the institution of celibacy and the religious orders. The existence of the celibacy of priests 
of religious orders of sisters and nuns and brothers keeps before the Christian mind that this is a passing world. The very fact that these people have given up marriage in order to devote their energies wholly to the mission of the church and therefore given up the beauties of family life and separated themselves by poverty from the concerns of making a living in this life keeps before the minds of the married people in the church that this is a passing life. So the two institutions are complementary to each other. Marriage and celibacy represent the tension in which every Christian lives. Every Christian lives between heaven and earth. And so it is essential to us to keep these two institutions and essential to us not to let go either side of it. If we do let go either side of it, then we are in danger of forgetting that we are a pilgrim church, that we are on our journey. That is why in the Christian church, there's always been something that troubles a lot of people. They don't understand it that we call asceticism. Asceticism means discipline. Self-control, the scripture calls it sometimes, self-control. And asceticism is shown by the ordinary Christian when he keeps Lent and fasts during Lent. It's shown by the fact that we give up our Sunday or part of our Sunday to go to Mass, which is sometimes giving up a, some precious time of rest. It's shown when we say our prayers regularly, which sometimes gets tedious and difficult and we're busy. It's shown by married people when they not only practice chastity and avoid adultery, but when in order to regulate their families, they practice natural family planning and abstain for times from sexual intercourse. As much as that is expressive of their love, yet as St. Paul mentions, sometimes it is wise to abstain from sex in order to take time for prayer and to take the energy and the attention and the emotional concentration that is required for prayer. We see this at its height in the religious orders of the church. I've already mentioned celibacy, but to give up marriage is a big sacrifice for a human being. It's an ascetical practice. And we find, for example, with a religious order like the Trappist, that they give up eating meat all their life. They're vegetarians all of their life. They live a very hard life made up of many penances and ascetical practices. Now, what's the point of all that? Doesn't that show a lack of gratitude for God's gifts? God gave us our body. Our body is a good thing. It expresses the fact that we are made in the images of God. Our soul is more in the image of God than our body, but our body expresses our soul, so it also expresses a likeness to God. Our body is good. Food is good. The point is made, as you know, in the gospel, that some of the Pharisees mocked Jesus and his followers because Jesus went to banquets. In order to contact sinners and to be able to talk to them, he accepted their invitation to their feasts and banquets. And people said of him, he's a wine-bibber and a glutton. They expected him to be as ascetical as some of the Pharisees who fasted a great deal. Jesus didn't hesitate to go to banquets. He went to the marriage of Cana and worked a miracle to turn water into wine. 
Why then is it, if these are gifts of God and they're good things for which we ought to be thankful to God, that anybody should give them up? Why should they give up sex? If sex teaches us to love another in a very personal and intimate way, that enables us to learn to love God in a personal and intimate way. Why should we give these things up? And some people have said of this that asceticism is a kind of self-torture, that we torture ourselves in order to destroy ourselves. Well, there have been Christians who have thought that and became heretics. In the Middle Ages, those heretics were called Manichees. It was a sect of people called the Manichees who taught that the body is evil, that we should starve ourselves to death, and we should give up marriage so that there would be no more children to come into this evil world, which is a product of the devil. My order to which I belong, the Dominican order, was founded by St. Dominic because he met some of these Manichees, and he was so horrified by the fact that they were teaching this to Christians and claiming it was a Christian doctrine that he founded a religious order of preachers to go about to give people a correct idea. These are gifts of God. It's not a good thing to kill oneself or torture oneself. That's just a product of sickness and depression. But it is a good thing to learn self-control. We've only to look around us to see what happens when we don't learn to control our passions, our appetites, our tendencies. That we don't learn to bring them under control so that they serve us rather than to become we become their slaves. We're in a culture where many people are alcoholic, many people are drug dependent, and many people are sexual addicts. Their whole life has been ruined by the fact that they do not control their sexual appetite. They allow it to lead them into all kinds of foolish and damaging things. We cannot overcome that if we do not have hope in a future life that enables us to discipline ourselves in this life, to be free of those things that enslave us and keep us from moving forward to God. Christian asceticism, therefore, is not self-destruction. It's self-construction. The alcoholic who learns to give up alcoholism and learns to find a different way to cope with their times of depression and unhappiness, a different way than taking a drink or taking a fix, is becoming a freer person. They are building their character. They're becoming liberated. They're becoming more human. Far from destroying themselves, they're building themselves, they're constructing themselves. Christian life, therefore, is an ascetical life, and that asceticism is an expression of our hope. The priest who gives up marriage in order to be a priest does not do so because the church commands him to do this. It's his free choice. Sometimes I hear the phrase optional celibacy. They say, well, priests should have the option of marriage. They have the option to dedicate themselves wholly to God as priests and therefore to undertake the asceticism of celibacy. That is their choice. Without that choice, they can never be priests fully dedicated to their mission. The celibacy of the priesthood is a good sign for us of the importance of hope in our life because it illustrates the tension in which every Christian lives, married or celibate, between heaven and earth, that we belong to earth and yet we look forward to heaven. And that is expressed in the church by 
our fasting, the practice of poverty by religious, the sacrifices that married people make, the celibacy of the priest. Now someone might say to me, well, if that's so, why is it that recently the Catholic Church has received as members of the church and as priests, and ordained as priests, men from the Anglican Church and allowed them to continue with their marriage? Why is it that it has married deacons? Why is it that the Eastern Church and also many Eastern Rite Catholics have married clergy? Well, of course, the church is a very practical institution. And in things that are not absolutely necessary, it accepts different practical historical circumstances and customs. While the celibacy of the clergy is very ancient in the Christian church, both in the East and the West, it has not always been required of the clergy in every place. And perhaps in the future, the church may allow married clergy here or there. But the question is whether or not celibacy isn't a good thing for the church. And I believe that history proves that the celibacy of the clergy has been very fruitful. The energies that might have gone into caring for a family, and a married priest has great concern to be a good father, a good husband, and a good parent. The energies that go into that through celibacy have been turned into the mission of the church. And it is indeed paid off for the mission of the church. And furthermore, it has taught the Christian people and the married people to keep ever in mind that we have here no abiding city, that time is passing, that in the future in heaven, as Jesus himself said, there will be no giving in marriage or taking in marriage. We are living for the future, but we are living well in the present. Hope then is what makes it possible for the Christian to live in this kind of tension between heaven and earth. Knowing that we already possess Jesus and yet looking forward to perfect possession. I mentioned in speaking of faith that it can be correlated with the virtue of prudence, the cardinal virtue of prudence, because faith shows us God, is a kind of vision of God, and the cardinal virtue of prudence helps us to make good decisions as we move toward God. Both are virtues that have to do with the way we think. Our mind is helped by faith to believe in God, and by prudence, our mind is helped to make good decisions, to see the good, distinguish the good from the bad, to see what is the right way to take. Now, in the case of hope, how is hope related to the cardinal virtues? Well, there are two cardinal virtues. One I've already been discussing, but we must come to it explicitly now. The virtue of temperance. When we hear temperance, I suppose most of us think of abstinence from alcohol, because in the United States there was a temperance movement. But the word temperance translates words in the New Testament that means self-control, moderation, sobriety, and particularly the notion of moderation. The virtue of temperance is what enables us to choose between two extremes with regard to those things that give us pleasure, particularly physical pleasure. 
A temperate person is someone who can go to the table, enjoy his meal, but not eat too much. Isn't that a wonderful virtue? I wish we could all get it. We wouldn't have a society in which everybody is dieting, including myself, which everybody is dieting if we were a society of temperate people. Temperate people don't have to diet. They enjoy their food, they eat enough, they're not anorexic, but on the other hand, they don't eat too much. Now that's difficult for a human being to hit that middle course, and so we need a particular virtue for it. And the same thing is true with regard to virtues that have more to do with the bodily touch, with comfort, for example, and particularly with a very powerful appetite, the sexual appetite. Sex is a good thing when used moderately. And for the married person, there must be moderation in the use of sex. Some people have the idea, well, if I'm married, then I'm dispensed from any kind of control over my sexuality. That's not true. It's not true for many reasons. It's not true because of consideration for the other person. A married man has to consider his partner, what she wants and what she is interested in and how she feels, and the woman reciprocally. Sex is essentially something between two people, and therefore it requires sensitivity to another person's needs, and that demands self-control. Furthermore, they need to regulate the size of their family in many circumstances. That requires the use of a legitimate method of regulating birth, natural family planning. There are times of sickness. There are times of pregnancy. When a married couple need to abstain from sex, and that's not easy precisely because Ordinarily, they enjoy their sexual relationship. So every Christian needs the virtue of temperance. Our culture is particularly bad in this respect. We have a very intemperate, self-indulgent culture. And every time we look at television, if we're not looking at eternal word, Every time we look at ordinary television, we see inducements to indulge ourselves, to have too much of everything, to lack discipline. We cannot be slaves of our appetites and still truly love God or love our neighbor. Our appetites will get in the way. We will do things that are selfish, that are directed only to ourselves and have no consideration for others. And we will do things that are foolish, that we know perfectly well, are bad for our health, bad for our work, bad for our relationships. And so we desperately need the virtue of temperance. The church is often criticized for talking so much about sex. And it's said of the clergy, well, look at the clergy. Because they're celibate, they're always thinking about sex, and they're always talking about it. And they're trying to be hard on other people because they have to be hard on themselves. Well, I tell you, as someone who has heard confessions for many years, the reason that the church talks about sex a lot is because people talk about sex a lot. Because this is such a big problem in people's life. It's the thing they most commonly bring to the clergy for help and advice. Because it's the pressing thing that they have not been able to manage well. One of the ancient writers, one of the desert fathers we call them, tells us that the monks in the desert found out 
that the hardest thing for them was not exactly sex, but it was eating, gluttony. They could learn to control their appetite for sex because they didn't indulge themselves at all. But when it comes to eating, there's a special difficulty. You've got to eat, and it's hard to control it. The church is very realistic, and it comes from long experience when she says that for the average person, one of the first things to work on in trying to build up our character is to learn self-control, to acquire the virtue of temperance. It's not that it's so important in itself. You can be a temperate person and still you don't amount to much. But if you're not a temperate person, your whole life may be ruined. How often we have seen that somebody, because they couldn't control their appetites, destroyed themselves and destroyed their work. So it's kind of a basic thing to acquire. And I've shown now that it's connected with hope. It's because we hope for the next life and we have a vivid realization of heaven that we can control our appetites here. If we really believe that there's a heaven in which we will be happy forever, it makes the pleasures of this life, it cuts them down to size. We see that, after all, they're not that important. They're good, and we need something of them, but they're not that important. That's not what our life consists in. Temperance gives us a sense of value. There is, however, another virtue, another cardinal virtue, which is connected with hope. Well, with faith, there is just one cardinal virtue, prudence. With hope, there are two cardinal virtues, temperance on the one hand and fortitude on the other. Fortitude means courage, and courage has two aspects to it. There is the courage to fight when it is necessary, and there is the courage to endure when it's necessary. The courage that goes over the top in a war fights the courage that endures in the foxhole. Those two kinds of courage are essential to us. How much we've admired recently O'Grady, the man who was a captive in Bosnia, and how bravely he endured that week because he trusted in God, and how humbly he thanked God and thanked the other people who he said have been through a lot more than he has been, and expressed gratitude to them. There is nothing more manly, in the right sense of the word, than this kind of courage. And sometimes women show it much more than men. Courage is a great virtue, and without it, one cannot be a Christian. St. Teresa said, the timid person never does any good. We have to have courage. And the whole Bible is filled with the stories of courage. You read the story of Joseph in the first books of the Bible and how the troubles he endured from his brethren, his struggles in Egypt, and his final success. We read the story of David, who was set on by his king Saul, and Saul tried to kill him, and David had to fight many fights before he brought peace to the Holy Land. We read about it in the prophets, these men of hope, who in the time of the exile of the Jews to Babylon, when everything seemed absolutely desperate, when hope seemed gone, who nevertheless uttered the promises of God.
We see it in the book of Maccabees. The woman with seven sons. And the Greek king offers all kinds of things to these seven young men if they will just worship the emperor. And they refuse to do it. And so the government tries to get the mother to persuade them to do it. And she goes to her sons as if she's going to persuade them. And you can imagine any mother doing that, going to the sons and saying, well, boys, don't be so stubborn. Just give in and you'll save your life. You're my boys. Save your life for my sake. But when she gets there, she says to the youngest of the boys, who's the last to die, she says, do not give in. Remain true to God. And of course, above all, we have the example of our Blessed Lady, the mother of Jesus, standing at the foot of the cross and enduring his crucifixion. She is the martyr of martyrs, not because she died, but because she suffered most. And she suffered in hope. When the apostles had lost hope and given up, Mary did not give up hope. And with her were the other women. I suppose their faith faltered, and their hope was not very great, and yet they stayed with her. There was in them a glimmer of faith, a glimmer of hope. When it had gone from the men who had been so closely associated with Jesus. Fortitude, therefore, is a basic Christian virtue, and it is connected with hope because without fortitude, without the ability to endure the dark times and the courage to move forward when it is necessary, to take those steps that are necessary for our salvation, the courage for example, the simple courage of going to confession when we feel so ashamed and we hate to do it. That kind of courage is absolutely necessary to the Christian life. Without it, we can't be saved, and it goes along with hope. And so the virtue of hope by which we live in this tension between heaven and earth is supported by two cardinal virtues. The virtue of temperance, by which we control our appetites for pleasure, which can enslave us and draw us aside from the right path, and the virtue of courage, which enables us to endure pain and fear and risk. It's no accident, therefore, that in our liturgy, Although we don't have the words temperance and fortitude, as I said before, those, the names of the cardinal virtues come from Greek philosophy. They're not as such biblical words. Nevertheless, we don't lose sight of temperance and fortitude in the Bible or in the liturgy because there are two great things that are honored in the liturgy. One is the virgin. The other is the martyr, and sometimes the virgin martyr. The church has always praised those two things. If we read the fathers of the church, the early church, one of the things that many of them wrote about and which today people wonder at, they don't understand, was their praise of virginity. The woman or man who from their youth dedicates themselves, their body, and their soul to God in the service of God. Celibacy is a great thing, but virginity is even more perfect. That is why we say that our Lord himself remained a virgin, why his mother was a virgin. Not because sexuality is something wrong, but because laying it aside 
for something greater is greater. The person who is a virgin, dedicated to God alone, is more fruitful even than the person who marries. Through the prayers of the virgins in the church, the nuns in the church, the sisters in the church who have taken the vow of virginity, the church is kept alive. It is their prayers, which as much as anything else, has given life to the church. Sometimes people who say that women should be ordained say, well, the priesthood is the highest thing in the church. Until a woman is able to have the highest thing in the church, she's being treated as an inferior. Don't we say in the United States that everybody ought to be able to become president? That's what shows that we're all equal. Well, you notice the assumption there is that the priest is the highest thing in the church. I don't find anything in the documents of the church that have ever said that priesthood is the highest thing in the church. There are many documents of the church that say the highest kind of life in the church is the life of the contemplative, the person dedicated wholly to prayer and asceticism. Because prayer is fundamental in the church, and the person who prays best does the most for the church. I don't mean in any way to dishonor priesthood, but I think we ought to remember that the priest lives mainly an active life of mission, and that the life that is more like heaven than the priest is the life of the contemplative nun. The church, therefore, honors virginity, total dedication to God, as the highest thing that can be achieved in this earthly life. And we need to remember it as the highest value, total dedication to God, given through the virtue of temperance. The other great heroism which is honored in the church is fortitude, martyrdom. From the blood of martyrs, the church is given its life. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.